This episode of the Experimental Brewing Podcast is brought to you by Pico Brew, makers of the Zymatic and Pico Brewing Systems. The brewing systems of the future are here now. Discover how easy and rewarding it is to make great beer with Pico Brew. And by Craftmeister and BTF Iota 4. When you absolutely positively need to make sure every surface is clean, bust out the cleaner with professional power and home brewer safety. Make better beer with better chemistry. Choose Craftmeister. An innovative fermenter that's 100% made in the USA. No cleaning or sanitizing required. The Genesis fermenter from Brewcraft is all of that. Just place the sanitary inner liner in the Genesis, fill with your wort, and pitch your yeast. That's it. Not to mention you can't break it, it has built-in handles, and the opening is almost 6 inches wide. The Genesis Fermenter from Brewcraft USA is truly innovative and can be purchased anywhere Brewcraft USA products are sold. And by NicoBrew.com. NicoBrew.com is your one-stop hop shop where Nico and his kilt take care of all your hop needs with nitrogen flush mylar and only $5 to ship anywhere in the U.S. and with great international rates. If you're a pro brewer or homebrew shop owner, get a commercial account at pro.nicobrew.com to take full advantage of Nico and his guild. And by the American Homebrewers Association, a community of more than 46,000 beer lovers. Since 1978, the AHA and its members have worked to promote the best hobby there is, homebrewing. Join us today for six issues of Zymergy Magazine, money-saving AHA member deals, and access to exclusive events and competitions. And remember, relax, don't worry, have a homebrew. Why Yeast Laboratories has provided fresh, premium liquid yeast cultures worldwide since 1986. Choose from our product collection of ale, lager, German wheat, Belgian ale, wine, malolactic, or wild and sour strains for your next fermentation creation. We're here to help you ferment premium products like the professional. Why Yeast? And by you, our listeners. Go to experimentalbrew.com to help support us. Click on the Patreon link to donate whatever amount you like to the podcast and our charities. Click on the Brew Your Own Magazine link to subscribe to BYO. Or click on the AHA link to join the American Homebrewers Association. Part of the proceeds from those will go to help support the podcast. And thanks for your support. everybody, welcome to Experimental Brewing with Denny and Drew. I'm Denny Kahn. And I'm Drew Beecham. Together we're the authors of Experimental Homebrewing, Mad Science in the Pursuit of Great Beer, and the forthcoming Homebrew All-Stars. Between the two of us, we have nearly 40 years of homebrewing experience. Now, I'm the guy known for weird beer with strange ideas. And I'm the guy who's known for questioning the conventional wisdom and coming up with ways to check it out. On today's episode, we'll head to the pub to discuss some hop medicine, how Pico Brew went to 11 this past weekend, and why everyone should get on board with sampler flights. Then it's off to the lab to discuss the findings of our Igors in Denny's favorite experiment, First Word Hopping versus 60-Minute Bittering Editions. It's going to be interesting. Yeah, should be. There's some very nifty data. All right, and then yeah. we're going to head out to the lounge, and we're going to hear an interview from uh, Denny and the Pacific Northwest Homebrewers Conference, where he interviewed Rodney. Rodney Kidney. 
That's right, Rodney, who has more medals than he has places to put them. And then we're going to hit you up with another round of Ask Denny and Drew, where we try and make up answers that sound plausible. And then we're finally going to close out the show with our quick tip of the week. Now, remember, you can always support us on Patreon. Uh, just go to patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com. Look for Experimental Brewing, or you can go to our website, experimentalbrew.com, and look for the Patreon logo. Click on it, and you can donate any amount of money that you want to. Now, what do we do with the money? Well, we use some of it to fund our experiments, but mainly the idea is we're trying to make a nice contribution to a charity called Freedom Service Dogs. They take uh, rescue dogs and train them to be service dogs for disabled vets. I can't think of anything much cooler than that. Throw us some cash, we'll throw it to the pooches, and everybody will increase their karma quota. Yeah, remember people, even a buck a month helps. Yeah, that's right, man. You know, uh, you don't have to send much money if a lot of people send money, and we can uh, send it off to these guys and get some dogs for some veterans. I mean, like I said, what could be better than that? Okay, so it's uh, it's time for mail. Uh, I, I hear that people are digging the session beer recipes. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think we launched. If you if you weren't aware, before the last episode, we promised. Oh, you know, we'll put up a thing for session beer recipes because, after all, very short in very short order, April seventh is rolling around the corner, and that's International Session Beer Day. Uh, if you didn't pay attention in episode nine, we actually talked to Lou Bryson, the organizer of the project, and so. As a sort of, hey, we're homebrewers, why not make some beer ourselves? We got together and we got 14 recipes from a bunch of our friends. Uh, They're all up on the website. And yeah, I think in the first couple of hours, we almost passed 5,000 reads of the uh, the article. So apparently, apparently people like session beer recipes, or at least they like recipe concepts. So expect us to visit back to the idea of recipe collections from uh, people you may or may not know. Uh, lots of people had a lot of fun with that. So hopefully we're going to see a lot of homebrewed session beer recipes. And by the way, if you have a session beer, that's a favorite of yours, let us know at podcast experimentalbrew.com. We may be putting up another set of session beer recipes because after all, it's always a good time for a session beer. Yeah. And I want to really thank everybody who contributed recipes, uh, for the website article. Uh, it, it's great guys. Thanks. Thanks a bunch, everybody. And then of course, also last, uh, last episode, was episode 10, The Revenge of the Q&A. And we were, <laughs> we were a little worried because that was a two-hour-long episode. <laughs> yeah. Oh, boy, can we rattle on. Uh, I, think, I, I think we averaged about four and a half minutes per question, so uh, not too bad. But we were a little concerned with how everybody would take it. And so far, uh, all the feedback seems to be uh, super, super positive. So I'm guessing... You're going to see us come back around to that concept as well. Maybe uh, every 10 episodes or so, fire up the old mailbag, giant collection of questions, and see whether or not we can uh, be stumped or at least fake our way out of stumping. Yeah, really. Uh, you know, it was, it really was a lot of fun. Uh, I, I actually learned some things from it because Drew and I had to go out and actually research to uh, find the answers to your questions. So uh, it'll be nice to do another one. Well, and that, and that's a good point. If you have a question that you think is a little tough or maybe a little different, the sooner that you get into us, the sooner that Danny and I can either, one, know the answer ourselves or 
uh, actually go find a resource who does know the answer. Yeah, Drew, Drew and I will be the first ones to tell you that we don't know everything, and I'm sure there are a lot of people who will back that up. But uh, we do have a, a lot of friends who know a lot more than we do, so if we don't know something, we'll go find it for you. With that said, I think it's about time we uh, head to the pub and have a beer. Heck yes. <laughs> okay, we'll be right back from the Experimental Brewing Pub with the Beer Life. All right, everybody, Drew and I are sitting here in the Experimental Brewing Pub at the corner of everywhere and nowhere in your town, USA, having a couple beers and talking about the beer life. Uh, what are you drinking today, Drew? Uh, you know, I decided to keep the uh, session beer theme going, uh, because why not? Uh, and I got reminded last week of a beer I really, really liked, which is uh, St. Bernardus Extra 4. And it's uh, oh, St. Yeah. Bernardus. Yeah, St. Bernardus is single. I totally kind of let that fade into the memory banks. And so last week I had it at the pub, and I went out and I got some. Ah, good on you, man. Yeah, I had one of those uh, not too long ago when I was at a, at a pub in Seattle. Uh, I'm just going standard today. I'm drinking my own rye IPA. What can I say? It's here. I love it. It was what I wanted to drink. So uh, that's the deal. So uh, we're going to start off talking about uh, how researchers uh, are seeing some uh, maybe medicinal uses for hops. Uh, we all know that hops have always been rumored to uh, carry uh, antibacterial properties. And uh, that, according to lore, that's one of the reasons they were first started being used in beer. Uh, but uh, now we're finding some uh, anti-cancer, anti-inflammatory properties. Uh, and, you know, to kick it off, uh, one of the guys in the article is quoted as saying, there's positive effects from drinking beer, but I don't think those positive effects are medicinal. So <laughs> the idea is to uh, kind of take some of the compounds that are in hops and do some work with them and try and uh, make them into a more medicinal and therapeutic form, although uh, maybe not quite as pleasant to uh, to take huh yeah well i mean so it's always been well known that hops are soporific right in other words they'll knock you out and make you go to sleep and yeah they're they have an impact on bacteria and whatnot but what's really cool was uh this was a set of articles published last week i think when uh, when we we're recording this and there were actually two there was one uh, a team of italian researchers in the journal of natural products uh, who isolated some chemicals from uh, Cascade hops. And then there was also a presentation, appropriately enough, uh, from researchers at the University of Idaho to a meeting of the American Chemical Society's, uh, or actually, sorry, their annual conference for the American Chemical Society in San Diego. Uh, also talking about making uh, synthetic versions of humulone and lupulone. Uh, and the whole idea was, People will talk about things like bioavailability, and both of those are supposed to be kind of their target chemicals that they think will have a real medicinal impact, but the way that they're found naturally doesn't have the same level of bioavailability and the same sort of uh, 
benefit that they want to see. So, uh, kind of cool to see that uh, hops may finally get a, another marker for use in all the dictionaries other than used for beer and making people go to sleep. <laughs> yeah, really. Uh, and it'll be interesting, too, to see if maybe once they start synthesizing some of these compounds, if they have any use in beer making, too. Oh, oh God. Yeah, no, the next thing I can see is we're, we're already seeing, like, the protein beers, right? You know, the people doing protein post-workout beers. Now you're going to have, here's your beer to fight cancer and your uh, common cold. Yeah, right. Well, you know, I think, I think maybe I'll just stick to... Uh, drinking the beer for uh, hedonistic reasons and uh, taking whatever health benefits I can get as a plus. That's not very organ of you. <laughs> I, thought, I, thought, I thought you guys were all about the natural supplements. Uh, yes, yes, that's that's true. We are. And it, uh, I'm looking at beer as a natural supplement, but uh, I'm looking at it as a pleasurable one, and I would rather drink it in a glass than uh, inject it into my arm or whatever. Well, hey, Maybe. you... I don't know. Just think about it this way. Beer adjusts your beer chakra. <laughs> okay. If you say so. I don't know, man. I, I don't know exactly what those words mean. Hey, the, the Swami Drew says it. All right. So next up, Denny, uh, obviously you have to tell us a little bit about uh, why and how did Pico Brew just go to 11? Oh, well, this is, it's it's a kind of a silly story, but uh, it's uh uh, kind of indicative of what wonderful people they are. Uh, I, my Zymatic was a first-generation machine, and uh, they have updated a bunch of the uh, the parts in it, uh, used better pumps and stuff like that. So I was in the Seattle area last week and uh, had arranged with them to stop by and drop off my old Zymatic and uh, get one of the new ones with the new pieces in it. And uh, I walked in the door and... Annie Johnson and Kevin Sullivan, their wonderful customer service guy. Well, a big shout out to Kevin here. He's uh, if if every company had customer service like Kevin provides, nobody would ever be dissatisfied. So I walk in and they walk me over to my new Zymatic, and uh, first thing I notice is that there's a stainless steel nameplate on it that says Denny Con Badass. Now, that's because Kevin and I both used to play in bands, and we customized our guitars with a, a bridge made from a company called Badass. So Kevin had had a, a special nameplate made for me and put it on the machine. And even cooler, when I looked up to where the knob was, which is usually just a plain black knob, there was a knob that looked like it could have come off a guitar amplifier, and it went to 11 I loved it. Oh, man, it was so wonderful. Uh, doesn't do anything any different than uh, than what the Zymatic usually does, but it was cool. It was indicative of what great people they are. Uh, you know, uh, what what can I say? Here's here's a uh, mark for other companies to shoot for. Well, but, you know, it, you could just make it louder, right? <laughs> yeah, except that it's actually quieter than my old one because of the new pump, so... Uh, you know, actually, maybe it goes to minus eleven. There. I don't know. Well, I, I do want to. I do want to have one uh, one quibble with you about uh, one thing that you said there was that if every company had customer service like uh, Kevin provides, nobody'd ever be disgruntled. Uh, that's spoken like somebody who's never actually been in customer service with the general public. Because oh, I have. Believe me, I have. Uh, I know. I know how difficult it is. Back in the days when I. Uh, 
worked for a company that manufactured some of the very first professional digital audio equipment. Yeah. Yeah, one of my jobs was interacting with customers. Yeah. And, I, I yeah. swear, given the sort of uh, attitude that I've encountered a lot nowadays, you could roll the Jesus, the Buddha, and you know everybody's favorite grandmother into one person, and there would still be disgruntled customers. <laughs> yeah, that's true. But So what's up with the sampler flights here, dude? Right. So I, I caught this thanks to uh, Terry Farendorf, who uh, is was the founder of the Pink Boot Society and uh, really kind of a spectacular beer person to know. And it's actually from the Brewers Association where they, did, they wrote up an article uh, called The Value of Fractional Pours. And it's all about samples and sampler flights. And so what was really cool about this was I have argued for years that if a brewery wants to make me really happy, and they'll hell a lot of beer bars if they want to make me really sort of be a happy camper, they would give me a way to have sample flights. Now, I've got a bunch of places around me that do this. Yeah, you can go and buy like a, a sample flight of four, and I think they charge you like a buck fifty per taster or buck seventy-five, or depending upon where you are in LA, sometimes maybe two seventy-five, I don't know. LA is kind of expensive. Uh, but that way you can get a broad spectrum of taste. Now, there are a lot of places that don't do this because they're like, oh, it costs us money and it, it's extra labor and blah, 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 blah. But the BA's article actually goes and shows that there's an actual money value where you do get increased value uh, from doing sampler flights because of things like 70, I think the numbers, yeah, it's right here. 71% uh, of the guests who try a sample of beer or sample flight go on to order a full pour of it. Uh, and that guest checks that do at least one sample or sampler flight in it have a 35% higher craft beer sale per ticket than those without. Uh, now, that's great for the people who uh, worry about the money side of it. From my point of view, what I do and what why I really like the samplers is because I will full-on completely admit to being guilty of every craft beer nerd's thing. I am a nuevo file. I want to have the new. And if I can get a sampler flight, then I can have a chance to spread out the number of new tastes that I get to have while still also being able to have another beer that I truly enjoy. So I can go down to, you know, one of my locals, which would be uh, 38 degrees and 38 degrees offers sampler flights. And I can go in and in a typical meal, I can have like two sampler boards and a full pint or two and walk out of there and not be completely wrecked, but having had tried, you know, 10 different beers. And that's awesome. And that's part of the reason why I love going back to that place. You know, I, I have to admit that this whole thing kind of seems strange to me because I, I can't imagine any place that wouldn't do that. I mean, or at least around where I live, that's more common than not. So the idea that somebody is talking up the ideas of sampler flights because not enough people do them is kind of a bizarre concept for me. Well, I don't think it's that not enough people do it. I think it's that there are sort of hardcore people out there. And, and my localist local pub, you know, the one that I can walk to from uh, from my house, which I love dearly, does not do samples and does not do sampler flights. They, they refuse to do them. Uh, they, they might give you a small taste, but, you know, that nice little four-ounce pour? No, they don't do that. Uh, and 
I've that's always made me very disgruntled about that place. But yeah, I've seen in a, I've seen in a lot of joints. Uh, some of it's just cost. Some of it is local ordinance. Some of it is that they don't want to tie up their bartenders pouring out you know multiple small shots of beer. Whatever. I don't care. As a customer, I love it. Please do yeah, it. Yeah, no kidding. Well, and and it does seem that ultimately they'll sell more beer that way because you try more things and end up wanting to buy more pints. You know. Well, and if I get a ch- and if I get a chance to try something. Yeah, I'm less likely to send it back. I have, and I will send back beers that I don't like. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, it's much better for them to do that on a small board than it is on a large board. <laughs> really, really. So, okay, so get with it, bars. If you're not doing sampler flights already, you should be starting because we'll support you and we'll buy more beer that way. Yes, indeed. So, I guess. Uh, Speaking of buy more beer, maybe we should finish up these pints, grab another one before we uh, head off to the lab. You think so? Yeah, I think we got some science to do. Okay, we're going to head to the lab. We're going to be talking about uh, first word hopping and p-values. We'll be right back. Alrighty, we're out here in the lab at Casa Verde, we're having a couple beers, and we're going to be talking about first word hopping. But before we do that, we want to talk a little bit about p-values. If you've listened to the podcast before, uh, if you've uh, been to Marshall's Brewlosophy website, you kind of know that uh, the p-value is uh, what we use to decide if something is statistically significant or not. And we uh, we recently got a letter from a gentleman named Tim Hagen who uh, had a little bit of insight into p-values for us. You want to talk about that, Drew? Yeah. Uh, first things first, everybody, sit back, grab a beer, take a deep sip because we are going to talk a little bit of math, uh, but we're going to try and uh, make sure that it doesn't hurt anybody too badly. So yeah, Tim Tim wrote us a really great uh, email because it's really hard sometimes to explain to people what a p-value is because p- people tend to want things to be certainties, right? And stats are not certainties. Uh, stats are prob- deal a lot with probabilities. And so p-value is even weirder because p-value doesn't tell you, yes, this is something or no, it's not. It just It's a sort of a correlation value, right? So here's Tim's uh, explanation. Uh, and I quote, This is how I explain p-values to non-statistical slash non-technical folks. True statisticians would twitch if they heard this. But it is correct, just not convoluted with the hypothesis, the null hypothesis, assuming no difference, blah, 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 blah. Simply put, the p-value is a measure of how confident you are there is a significant difference between the two groups. The lower the p-value, the more confidence there is a difference. For example, a p-value of 0.05 indicates a 95% confidence that there is a difference. A p-value of 0.10 indicates a 90% confidence in the difference. A p-value of 0.25 indicates 75% confidence, etc., etc. Your confidence level and associated p-value is chosen based on how important it is to make the correct decision or how much risk there is in making a wrong decision. So in science and industry, 95% confidence, a p-value of uh, of 0.05, is the typical value used but you can go higher or lower depending upon the circumstances. As you guys have said, we're not trying to cure cancer, so anything beyond 80% or a p-value of 0.20 
is a strong indicator of a difference, but that is just my opinion. So basically what Tim's saying is, you know, look, we, we've been using uh, 0.05 as our confidence level uh, because that is, as he indicated, fairly typical in science to do. And that's a, that's about a 95% confidence that, that we are actually seeing a real difference. Now, again, it's a confidence that there's a difference, not a confidence that, you know, whatever the hypothesis is, is absolutely correct. So that's the real takeaway that, about a p-value. Does that make sense? Does that hurt your head, Denny? Uh, you know, actually, uh, that was one of the more uh, cogent explanations that I've ever heard. Uh, I want to really thank Tim for... Uh, putting in words that even I can understand. Now, what's interesting is that at the same time we're talking about this, there was a, a great article on a website called stats.org uh, discussing how the American Statistical Association is kind of rethinking the relevance and the usefulness of the p-value. The guy who uh, originally came up with it, Ronald Alamer Fisher, uh, in the 1920s at the Rothamsted Experimental Station in England, kind of came up with the whole concept of the p-value. But rather than having the p-value be the be-all and end-all, as we and apparently many statisticians take it to be, his whole concept was to just try and find out if there was enough difference to be worthy of further study, as opposed to uh, saying, okay, this definitively proves it. You know, and I really think that in that regard, that's kind of how we're using it. Because, you know, what we always say about our experiments is, look, this is the way the numbers came out, but this is just what we found. You guys need to try it for yourself and see what you think and uh, add your own input into our findings. So, Remember, the p-values give you a pretty good indication of something, but they are not the final answer. Yeah, I, I always kind of think of it as the p-value is that moment when you, uh, if you get a, a p-value that shows a, a, an indication of a difference or a confidence that there is a difference, uh, that becomes the moment when you stro uh, stroke your beard and go, interesting, very interesting. Yeah. So. Yeah, right. Yeah, uh, at least I'm not taking it to be the final definitive answer, I'm taking it as a pretty good indication and uh, an indication that maybe more testing needs to be done. Oh, hell, so, like like anybody's ever going to agree there's a final answer about anything brewing related. Yeah, right, exactly. Well, as we often say, you put uh, 10 different brewers in a room, ask them a question, you'll get 13 different answers. So, yeah. uh, well, yeah. and, and we'll, we're going to make sure that we have the uh, link to the article in the podcast listing so that you can read as well, and we'll include yeah, Tim's defi text. De definitely. I would, I would sit down with a beer, advise you to sit down with a beer and uh, read this article. So now that we've gone through all that, we're going to talk about first word hopping and the results we got and uh, <laughs> the p-values. Oh, my God. Yep. So basically... This was a, a redo of an experiment that I did oh, a good 10 years ago, if not more, in which a batch of wort was split. One, one half of the wort was given a dose of uh, first wort hops. The other half was given the same amount of the same hops as a 60-minute edition, and those were the only hopping that these beers had. The idea was to try and 
find out, number one, if there's a noticeable difference between first word hops and 60-minute hops in terms of the bittering quality that they add to your beer, the, not only the quality but the amount, and also to see if first word hops added any of the other famous uh, things that they're supposed to, like more hop flavor, uh, you know, so. Right. So, and real had, quick, real quick, let's just yeah. catch everybody up uh, because obviously not everybody may know first word hops. First word hops is a old German technique that got a lot of interest uh, a few years back, about a decade or so back when people started to read some papers from the old timey pieces. It's basically go and add your hops to your, your boil kettle while you're doing your mash runoff, as opposed to throwing them in when you start actually hitting the boil. And yeah, there were all sorts of rumors about it or, or sorry, not rumors, but all sorts of values ascribed to the technique, including smoother bitterness, uh, more refined aroma, better flavor uh, from the hops. And so a lot of brewers here in America kind of picked up on this thing from a, a German study and ran with it for a while. So that's first word right. hops. So what I did a number of years ago was uh, I set up to do this experiment myself. I split the batch of beer, first word hop part of it, 60-minute hop the other half. Uh, set up a tasting panel here, and I sent uh, some of the beer down to uh, Jamil Zanishev, and he set up a tasting panel in California. And uh, what we came back with was kind of inconclusive results. Some people uh, thought that the first word hop beer was more bitter. Some people thought it was less bitter. Some people thought it had more flavor. Some people thought it had less flavor. Some people preferred the first word hopped beer. Some people preferred the 60-minute hopped beer. So... Really, really kind of a a mixed bag of results. So we thought it was time to do it again and see if we could get a little bit less mixed. So first of all, I want to uh, really thank all of our Igors who exper uh, who uh, participated in this. Bob Givens, Ryan Casey, Robert Alloway, and Miguel Loza. Thanks a lot, guys. Uh, we really appreciate you going through the work to brew the beer and put together the tasting panels. Yeah, and they and they actually did eight tasting panels and seventy eight tasters. So yeah, yay. yeah, that's a that's a significantly a a broader sampling than uh, than I got with my tasting panels. Uh, I think that we had uh, we did two sessions, and I think that there were about seventeen tasters or something like that all together in mind. So. This is this is really much more interesting. So, all right, Drew, your turn, buddy. Run through the results for us. Uh, okay, now this is this is interesting. Like we said, we had uh, what was it? Eight tasting panels. Uh, one of which has uh, a definite lock on being our outlier of the week award. We uh, always have one of those, don't we? We always do. But uh, I, I think it's important to show that uh, there's a reason why in science you do multiple trials. Um, so. Bob Givens actually did uh, three tasting panels with his beers, uh, and Bob was by by far and away the one who saw the most uh, most sort of within bounds uh, results. But he had, I think, let's see, one set of tastings. He had seventeen total tasters, thirteen of which successfully identified the beer uh, difference. Uh, in his second tasting uh, set, which was two more panels. He had 22 total tasters, of which 17 
identified the difference. Now, in both cases, that's about 76, 77% of his tasters. Uh, that's we, really remarkable. Right. In another set of tastings, Ryan Casey did two panels. He had eight tasters, only three of which were able to successfully identify the different beer. And then Robert Alloway also did two ta- tasting sessions with eight tasters and had four tasters successfully identify the beer. So, in other words, he had 50%. Uh, now, now we get to our outlier of the week. <clears throat> And that's Miguel. Uh, Miguel is a brewer who's down in San Diego, and he did his tasting at the Ensenada Beer Festival, and he had 23 tasters taste the beer, and he had 23 successful identifications of the different of the different beer for an incredible 100% accuracy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, makes you wonder, doesn't it? Well, I mean, given for people who remember our last discussion that we had uh, with Marshall, who sadly couldn't join us uh, this week, even getting up into the 70s and 80s starts to make you scratch your head a little bit. And mm-hmm. so with Miguel's 100% batting average, that makes me really worried. <laughs> How do you feel about that? Yeah. Well, no, I I agree. Anytime I see 100%, uh, I, I think that something has to be interestingly off. Uh, but then even, even looking at the other taste, I mean, uh, the other tasters, uh, you look at Bob having 13 out of 17 and 17 out of 22 and the other guys just barely making half. It gives one pause, doesn't it? It, it makes you wonder, you know, were, were some of these beers brewed significantly different? I mean, you know, did Brian brew his beer differently than Bob somehow, uh, you well, I mean, know, I, I think, I mean, they definitely brewed, brewed things differently, but to me, it's interesting that, I mean, okay, so just stopping and looking, if we had 78 tasters do the, uh, do this tasting and we assumed that everybody was correct and we used all the results out of those 78 tasters, we would have to have 34 of them identify the, the different beer in order to reach that significant value and uh, P value, right? So under 0.05. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Um, if we include everybody's results, we get 60 out of 78, which gives us a P value of zero, which means a hundred percent confidence, which means, <laughs> okay. Um, and it's funny cause if you, if you spend time talking with people who do this sort of, uh, sort of thing all the time, uh, you'll see that a P value of zero is, uh, is a real indicator of something's off. Uh, I think we talked to Marshall a little while ago and he, he, he made the claim and I think we're going to have to test this at some point that you could give a tasting panel two loggers and a stout and you still wouldn't get a hundred percent identification. <laughs> uh, I'm, yeah, I'm not sure if I can go that far, but I'm inclined to agree that a hundred percent identification is incredibly hard to get to, uh, with some of these differences that we're testing. So, right. Let's assume we take uh, Miguel's uh, 100% out of the equation. We're looking at a total of 55 tasters. Of, out of those 55, 25 would have to correctly identify the beer in order for this to be statistically significant. What we see out of this panel, again, not including Miguel's 100% results, is we see 55, out of the 55, 37 correctly identifying, which still gives us a p-value basically of zero. 
Uh, and but it also means that we had sixty seven percent of our tasters correctly identify that there was a di- the different beer. So that is truly remarkable, man. Uh, you know, it it makes me wish I could have been on one of these tastings. Well, yeah, but uh, there's also the the conundrum that I see, which is all right. So again, pulling Miguel out of the equation, we're left with three brewers doing the doing the experiment, and of those three brewers. Uh, Ryan Casey and Robert Alloway both got negative results, right? Their p-values were right. too high. Yeah, they were uh, yeah. 0.5 yeah. and 0.25, right? Which right. would indicate a non-reliable uh, detection of difference. Bob would be the one remaining brewer who saw a statistically significant identification, which means that we're into this realm of, okay, it's Bob's beard that has a definite difference. Now, that doesn't make me as shiny and happy as if we had more more people on that positive side of the ledger so that we could say well okay assuming that there are differences in everybody's techniques you know as much as they try to minimize them there's still this one thing that we know is a constant change and therefore we're seeing an actual something interesting you know right now where this experiment lies I almost see, okay, fine, we we achieve statistical significance on the experimental pool that we have, but the experimental pool of positive results we have are all from one beer. So are we testing first word hopping or are we testing, is there a statistical significantly difference or a statistical significance difference in Bob's beer? Yeah, right. Exactly. Exactly. So uh, basically then uh, what we're coming up with is results just about as mixed as uh, as I got 10 years ago, huh? Yeah, and and that and that means we're gonna have to revisit this and redo this because that's what we do. Yeah, right. And and you know what? I think maybe maybe you and I should do this because then we'll know exactly how it was done. Mm-hmm. I mean, and and I don't mean to uh, to cast aspersions that on any of our egos who brewed this. Uh, you know, I, I I'm not saying that anybody did anything wrong, but maybe somebody did something differently. I well, just don't know. So no, uh, no. I mean, I think uh, here's what I think the real takeaway is: is that we are in enough of a fuzzy gray area with this particular question that uh, we need more data. Right. Yeah. I mean, we we just yeah. need more data to be able to tell. Okay, what the heck's going on here? Now, what do you, given the given what you're seeing here in the data pool? What do you think? I mean, other than the fact that's mixed, does this does this give you any leaning or inclination towards a, a conclusion for your own brewing practices? I mean, personally, for me, in spite of the fact that my previous experiment was inconclusive, I still first word hop pretty much every American-style beer that I make because I feel like it does make a difference. I don't think it changes my mind on that at this point because we have mixed results. And especially when you look at some of the... Uh, some of the notes that we got from the tasters, uh, their perception of first word hop beers pretty much matches my own. But, you know, I, I, I hesitate to really draw any conclusions from this. And mm-hmm. for those of you out there listening who want us to give you an answer, uh, I, I'm sorry, we don't have one at this point. Uh, I I would love to be able to tell you that I'm exactly right about first word hopping, and it gives you smoother bitterness and more hop flavor. But I'm not 100% convinced that that is the case yet. So, well, and uh, then, as we we're 
as we were saying earlier about the uh, the p-value being a good indicator of further study being needed, I think that that's where I'm at with this one. Well, and we'll get more into it when I uh, when I do the experimental write up uh, that will appear the week after this episode. Uh, but it is interesting to note that in looking through the tasters' reactions on all of them, including uh, Miguel's and Bob's and Ryan's and Robert's, there seems to be a real split in terms of which one do you prefer, just like what we saw with the Whirlpool. Right. Yeah. So here's the thing, is that even if the data itself is mixed on this, you know, the data is just exploring whether or not you can reliably tell a difference. Uh as brewers, there's still the organolectic part of it that we have to be concerned with. And while the science right now may be saying uh, mixed results on there, also the organolectic side of it is saying mixed results, which shouldn't be a surprise. Yeah, and I mean, and to me, we could have results that come back showing that there was a clear difference in people being able to perceive the first word hop beer versus the 60-minute beer. And that could be absolutely clear. But as to preference, that could be a, a totally different thing because it's completely subjective and some people are going to prefer a beer that tastes one way and some people are going to prefer a beer that tastes another way. Indeed. So uh, so anyway, I guess uh, all we can say at this point is go to the website, uh, read the write-up when, when Drew posts it there, see what you think, what your interpretation of the results is. Shoot us an email, actually. Let us know uh, how, how you see the results, uh, what they say to you. And in the meantime, we will do more study on this and more experimenting and see if we can come up with uh, any more info to add in. Well, and I'll also throw out there that this is a perfect example of an experiment where we could use more help. So if you're intrigued by this and you want to know the answer... Uh, the experiment's up there. You can you can read the you can read the whole parameters. You can do this experiment yourself, and then report back to us the results that you see. And then that way, we'll have even more data. Yeah, that's right. That's what we need. So there we go. From the lab, we have our first word hop experiment. We have results. We're not quite sure what they mean, but we're going to keep thinking about it. Yeah, time to scratch so, the noodle. Uh, yeah, that's right, man. Scratch the noodle. Now we're off to the lounge, and we're going to play an interview that uh, I did with Rodney Kibsey at the Pacific Northwest Homebrew Conference a couple weeks ago. It's just about time, it's just about time, don't you think it's about time, we talked about beer. Okay, this is the part where everybody sings, beer, 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 beer. All right, everybody, welcome to the Interview Lounge. We're here hanging out, and it's time to have some more beer because, hey, it's beer time. And uh, Denny has come back to us with an interview that he did at the Pacific Northwest Homebrewers Conference, the inaugural one, where he was the keynote speaker. Uh, and uh, Denny, this one is with uh, Rodney Kibsey, right? Yeah, Rodney uh, Rodney moved out to the Pacific Northwest from Chicago a few years ago, uh, and uh He's on a quest, I think, to uh, win a best of show in every state in the union, and well, uh, he may be getting darn close to that. 
Well, I was going to say, yeah, you can watch his, you can watch his Facebook feed and you'll see like, oh, thank you, Idaho. Thank you, this state. Thank you. <laughs> and, and I mean, if it's not, it's not enough that uh, Rodney has already won the uh, Sam Adams long shot contest twice. Yeah, right. I know. It's like, you know, like when we were doing the interview at one point, he made some reference to the first time I won the long shot and I'm kind of going, oh man. So anyway, uh, Rodney gave a great seminar at the conference about uh, his secrets to brewing and winning, uh, which basically comes down to there are no secrets, as he'll say in the interview. And uh, he graciously agreed to sit down with me in the very noisy lobby of the Vancouver, Washington Hilton for a while and uh, talk about how he brews and what some of his ideas are. Well, there you go. Let's go see some Rodney's action. Hey everybody, this is Denny. I'm sitting here at the Pacific Northwest Homebrew Conference, the first one ever, with Mr. Rodney Kibsey, and we're going to be talking about homebrewing. So, uh, Rodney, go ahead, introduce yourself, tell us a little bit about you. I'm Rodney Kibsey, as Denny just said. I've uh, been homebrewing for, since 2002, uh, back kind of when it was at least in its infancy staging of you know conferences and everything. I've been a beer judge since 2003. Probably got certified with less than a year of brewing. Totally, That's amazing. Totally, yeah, totally changed my world. Wow. I, I'll tell you what, probably one of the biggest and most beneficial experience I ever had was joining Homebrew Club. I tell anybody and everybody, what should I learn about beer? How can I learn about making beer? Join a club. Wow. Great advice, yeah. man. I mean, that, and that's that's something everybody needs to hear. It's, it's so. worth it's worth its weight in gold, right? You know, yes, books are great, but club experience, interaction, you know, getting feedback, learning about you know the craft, and you know, like saying, well, is there problems with my beer, or what is that flavor, and and people will help you solve those problems. Right, right. So, okay, so this is this is the question we ask everybody: What's your favorite curse word? <laughs> is this like when I'm driving? <laughs> <laughs> Just your favorite. Uh, I'd say probably shit. All right, man. Well, you know what? Uh, you are bucking the trend because most people say fuck. <laughs> so you're you're a real individual in that regard. Which of the seven, de- seven deadly words do you want me to say? <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. Well, I'll bleep it out anyway when I'm editing. <laughs> now, if I'm driving, it's like, you mother. <laughs> I can see that. I can see that. So, when did you first discover good beer? You know, I can actually remember that today, the experience. I can't remember the actual day. I, I believe it was like in 1995. Mm-hmm. I was moved to Chicago and was working downtown, and we take the train out. And this guy says, well, I need to stay, but we'll stop at a bar on a Friday for beer. And so he drove in, he gave me a ride out, and we stopped somewhere in the western near suburbs of Chicago. It was really Chicago, but like a smaller neighborhood. And we stopped at this literally, literally a hole in a wall place. And he orders two beers, and this guy puts this very tall, cylindrical, almost kind of curvy-shaped glass in front of me that looked like somebody scrambled an egg in it. <laughs> it was like yellow, and it was just like, what the hell is that? And he's like, just try it. And I smell it, and I'm just trying, I'm like, wow, that's amazing. What I didn't know was it was a German Hefeweizen, a tr- you know, like a Hockershore Hefeweizen, so it wasn't just like an American Hefeweizen, it was, you know, the real deal. Right. And, and uh, after that, I was like, 
I need to find this other stuff. I know there's got to be more than just this out there. And you know, here in the Midwest, Line and Kugel had their their um, honey bites. So I'm like, oh, I gotta try that, or I gotta try something else. So just you know, that just started it. But unfortunately, it didn't get into home brewing until about seven years later. All right. So, um, what's your favorite style to brew and to drink? I don't think I have a favorite style. I, I do love my German beers. So, if there's any beer I brew the most, it's a German Weizenbach. Mm -hmm. uh, I just, I don't know, I think it has a lot of, lot of things going on. Yeast derived, malt derived, and it just puts me, I guess, kind of in your happy place. It's really strong, too. The alcohol <laughs> helps a lot. <laughs> it always does, yeah. man. And, and I think it just goes back to when I first started home brewing. There's that, um, you know, it's new, it's fresh, and it, it just kind of like, you, you know, you're exploring new areas. And, right. and to make something like that, to have something that had that much flavor, I can, you know, I can remember the first time I made that beer too, and and it's just like I always hunted out if I can get Aventinas or Aventus Schneider's Aventus. Right. Uh, I always, yeah, I want one of those. So, so you enter a lot of competitions. A lot. <laughs> Wait till the next, big next news that's coming the end of this year. Oh, man. <laughs> There's more stuff coming. I mean, you seem to be one of, one of the winningest home brewers I have ever run across, man. It seems like every time you win, you're coming home with best of show or close to it. What's your secret? Is there a secret? Didn't you go to my seminar today? That no. was That was part of it. I, that was the running joke. What is my secret? You go, you shouldn't have secrets. You call me out online of that. You remember. I, I didn't say you shouldn't have secrets. I think I said that there are no secrets. <laughs> and that, that was the answer. You answered the question. There really isn't any secret. And I actually talked about that in my seminar this morning. And I laid it out. There's three key things that everybody knows, but just maybe doesn't adhere to them. Keep it clean. Keep it simple. And keep it balanced. Okay. And that leads right into the next question. Okay. Can you describe... You did get the clean part. That's, I, that's the clean. hard... That's the hardest part. Oh, yeah. Well, will, you know, when I started... But home, so simple. Yeah. When I started homebrewing, the guy that got me into it said 90% of homebrewing is cleaning. And I've never actually measured the percentage, mm -hmm. but I would not be surprised if that was true, you know? Or if, even sanitation. Yeah. It's like if, if, if you don't like doing the work, then don't even think about brewing. Yeah, because you know? you're wasting your, your money, your time, and, and your giving bad beer to your friends. <laughs> okay, so here we go, man. This is the other one we ask everybody. Describe your brewing philosophy without using the word balance. So you're talking about more like when I brew, my like or my, when, my approach to brewing. Yeah, yeah. When, when, you, when you're designing a beer in your head, writing it down on paper, you know, what, what's, what's your approach to that? I'm pretty systematical. Like, I look at structure and saying, you know, there's key parts that make up this whole mm -hmm. and understanding those key parts and, right. and, and how they compare. But also how... And that was my talk today. <laughs> Should have been in there. <laughs> I'm selling books, man. <laughs> oh, you're, you're big business now, huh? Pimp, pimp. Just call me the book pimp. <laughs> but uh, just trying to find the marriage of those ingredients and how those play on each other. That's how I look at it. Okay. And, and I look at 
um, complementing, complementing flavors. So like if you have a yeast that is very fruity and you use a hop that's very fruity, well the flavors are, say those fruity flavors are fairly similar, you're actually complementing that fruitiness even more but with a different ingredient. You don't find them clashing at all? You gotta find, that, that's the hard part. Mm -hmm. You know, I think, uh, I remember I wanted to make a hoppy smoked beer and you know, I, I lived in Chicago and so if you ever have a smoked beer question, who does everybody always want to ask? Ray Daniels, because mm -hmm. he wrote the book on smoke beers. So I asked him, and he's looked at me and goes, no, you can't do it. I'm like going, good, that's what I wanted to hear. <laughs> <laughs> and so I did it, but I used hops that were more earthy and woody, mm -hmm. so like Northern Brewers and some of the German Noble hops. I didn't play on citrus, because citrus and smoke, not saying you can't do it, but just wouldn't be as pleasing. Right. So I didn't say balance that one time. I know you either. did. I know. I, I like that, man. I, I like the complimentary thing. I think that's a really good way to think of it. You but know? you should, you know, my talk, oh, sorry. My talk was about building on flavors. Mm -hmm. And how do you build on flavors? Well, you break it down to the smallest entity of the ingredients and what understanding what ingredients gives you what flavors. And then when you go from different ingredient to ingredient, you can go from base malt to specialty malt, and then from bittering hops, flavoring hops, dry hops, and just seeing where do I have overlap and comparisons. Right. And just, like I said, you're building those flavors. And another thing is, I don't like when I hear people say, oh, the beer's not complex enough. Well, when people think complexity, they go, oh, then I need to add like 50 different kind of grains right. or 40 different kind of hops. Complexity is actually coming out of simplicity of building those flavors that gives you the so-called word complexity. Man, that is that is brilliant. All you people out there, pay attention to what Rodney <laughs> just said. That is really, really good advice. Uh, so do you have like favorite ingredients, I mean, that you turn to, that you know are, are gonna make the beer you want? I like Vienna malt. Yeah? I'm a big, I put Vienna malt like in pale ales, IPAs. I, I know a lot of brewers like to use Munich malt. I think it's almost too much toasty. I like that warm play of subtleness of the toastiness of Vienna. Mm -hmm. It's not as rich as, as you would get out of a Munich malt. When it comes to hops, I mean, Magnum is an awesome hop. Right. You want a great bittering, clean hop, that's a, that's a go-to hop. Right. You know, and old school Centennial hops are amazing too. Well, yeah, 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 man. You if you love your two-hearted, <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, I mean, at least for me, I can't go wrong with like the the classic Chinook Cascade Centennial you thing. You see hops, you know. Yeah. Uh, there, there's a reason that those became so popular. And, and it's really interesting to see how, you know, I've been talking to a lot of brewers. I went to CBC last year, and how. I don't want to say old world, new world. I think that sounds like when we're talking like Europe to America. Mm -hmm. I kind of like to call them older variety and newer variety of hops. The older variety of hops are more single, or you know, one or two flavor profiles that make up like Centennial or Cascade. They have great flavors to them. They're not nearly as intense as the new variety of hops. They don't have as many aromatics like. You know, if you have citrus, you're like, oh, no, I'm smelling gooseberry and pineapple mm -hmm. and mango and peach and plum and everything else. Those hops are way intense in flavor and aroma. So, right. so um, there's there's a lot of things to play with out there nowadays, and that's what's so great. Now, I mean, this conference is amazing. 
this is just as good as NHC. It is, isn't yeah. it? That's what yeah. has blown me away, man. These people have done a wonderful job. It, it's, it is NHC, only smaller. Yeah. You know, where you can almost get around and talk to everybody here. Yeah, and, and they're still, you still run into a lot of people that are from your local clubs, but then other newer people, like, you know, I don't know as many people up in Seattle. Like, I know Mark Emily, and, and but I don't know as many as I think I should. Right. And that's fine, because this is a chance to meet people. That's right. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's great for that. Yeah. So. And, and I had... I have to say I had low expectations of this and I think you said during your keynote, you know, it's inaugural, what are we going to get or, you know, that was, was that with Jill? Was well, that Jill? I mean, I, I, I said it too, I mean, two months ago I wasn't sure that this was even going to really happen. Well, well we had our banter online about, like, I'm like, is anybody listening? <laughs> you're like, you're like. Hello, anybody in there? <laughs> yeah, well, they, I mean, I, I know that uh, they had a lot to do because yeah. they were all volunteers and stuff, and everybody was worried, but man, in the end, they just really pulled off a it great, came together. great conference. There's been zero hiccups. I know. And everything, not from, from, from you know, the, uh, the, I guess what we call the hospitality suite. Right. To the seminars, to the food service. Yeah. Oh, yeah, by the way, there was food here, too. <laughs> uh, we used to do that at NHC, but believe me, Trying to serve lunch for 3,000 people is not a good idea. But you had to remember when NHC was 300 people, right? Uh, yeah, I, I do. And, and you know, I, I think that that's the only thing worse than having 3,000 people is having 300. Yeah. Were you at the inaugural one? Uh, the inaugural NHC? Yeah, I yeah. Oh. No, no, no. My very first one was uh, in Orlando in 2006. Oh, really? And we had. Oh, we had I actually went to one before you did. Oh, yeah. Okay. I didn't go to one until I. I was on the governing committee because I just couldn't afford to go. And yeah. Once I got on the governing committee and had to be there, then it's kind of like, oh, I'll figure out a way to afford it. Well, that's what's great about this conference. I mean, listen to me. I'm like kind of selling this, but I don't have to because, yeah. I mean, this is local. This is in our backyard. I can. I'm, I live 20 miles from here, or not 20 miles, 20 minutes. Yeah. So. And next year, they're possibly talking being in Eugene. So it's only a couple hours. And you're saving on, you don't have to pay for flights, you know. And, right. And the hotels, they're, they're not in huge cities, so they're not way overpriced. Right. And, and, the, and they're small enough, like you said, it has that homey feeling to it. Yeah, it's really nice. Yeah. So, so what's the most unusual beery thing you've done? <laughs> Brewed or run naked down the street drinking a beer or whatever? <laughs> I would say, at least for brewing-wise, I remember back when I first started brewing, and I put grapefruit zest in the saison. I never thought that that I never thought grapefruit like I mean we're talking sculpin grapefruit, right. how that was so it's grown so big that I did this like back in 2003, and then flashing ahead what 10, 12 years right. that it's just gone crazy. Now everybody wants to put grapefruit in everything. I was like, well, did I start something? Probably not. <laughs> I, I know the feeling, man, because it's like, I don't remember seeing very many rye beers around before I started making rye IPA. Yeah. And suddenly it started popping up everywhere. I'm going, so did I influence this or am I just noticing it because yeah. I'm into it now? Or like, well, it's funny because like the first time I won the long shot, I, you know, in the Midwest, I made a black IPA. And we all know it's called the CDA. Right. It was nowhere to be found in the Midwest. Yeah, maybe it was out here, but I remember making that the first time I made it, and that won me the long shot. But after that, it was like everywhere. Everybody wanted to do the, I guess I said, 
a black IPA, and then I move out here and there. Of course, they're everywhere because we're in Cascadia. <laughs> but it was really weird to say, I'm not saying I created the first one, but I felt like as a home brewer, I was there and had probably the most success at an emphasis stage yeah. of a style. I know that it's said a lot that home brewers kind of are the, uh, the development labs for commercial brewers. R&D. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> you know. And I, I don't, I, I'm sure that that doesn't happen in every case, but I'm sure that uh, there are cases where commercial brewers are looking at what home brewers are doing and going, man, I could run with that concept. I, I would like to do that. And people ask me, do you want to become a professional brewer? I'm not saying I'm old or anything, but, you know, that's a lot of hard work. I respect those guys that yeah. do what they do. They're crawling into those mashed on lotter tons, cleaning them out. We're working with some hazardous chemicals. My back wouldn't be able to handle it. Right. But I would love to do the R&D stuff for a brewery to say, hey, here's what I got, or here's what I can create for you. I can work with you on ideas. I can brew up small batches. I can let you taste it. And before, you know, then you don't have to risk spending all that money to brew a larger size batch and then and then scale it up. Right. So I've always thought about wanting to do that. And I actually, I did talk to somebody past, fall, past last spring at CBC, but the brewery was in Chicago. And I said, you know, the logistics is pretty tough. Right. Yeah, I, you know, but I agree, man. I'm the same way. It's like, you know, I have <laughs> I have no desire to do the hard work, but being able to consult for a couple yeah. of breweries, you know, and give them ideas and stuff like that is yeah. the way to go. And, it, so. and unfortunately, my day job pays, too, pays me too much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I didn't have that problem. Okay. <laughs> so uh, what common wisdom brewing practice do you think is wrong or overinflated? Huh. Oh, hot side oxidation. You, you and everybody else, man, that is the most common like answer to that wash. question. Yeah, well, you know, and for years that was, you know, such a, such a, a devil for homebrewers that we all really tried to avoid it without realizing that we didn't have to avoid it. You know? Don't breweries have this thing called a whirlpool that <laughs> yeah. they do at the end of oil so they're not splashing and aerating that? Right. I'm confused. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So, but, but my other one is, is, is a lot of home brewers don't understand what a diacetyl rest is when doing lagers. I think that it's, it's the thing that people don't understand, and it's the most simplest thing to understand. It's the easiest thing to do. Right. And, and if you don't do it, it is the worst thing that could happen to your beer. How many, how many times have you had questions about what temperature should a diacetyl rest be? You know? And uh, I mean, I don't know about you, I get that all the time, and you kind of have to explain Room to temperature. people, it doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> the whole idea is you're trying to make the yeast more active, and if you warm it up, that'll happen, yeah. you know? So the exact temperature just and, doesn't... And, and you know, it's funny, because I sat in an Annie session about the, the Czech pills, which was really good. Mm -hmm. She's really good. And they asked that. <laughs> temperature say do my dad's arrest and I'm like on oh, I'm shaking my head and I'm like how long and I'm like on a day or two okay and then you put it back in and you go back to drinking your beer or yeah. laying on the couch and <laughs> right so uh, what is the worst thing that's ever happened to you while you're brewing I don't think it's been like anything dramatic maybe oh I thought that was carapils and that was just Munich but it wasn't a lot um, Maybe I've had one or two batches. I think I've had an Irish red turn turn on me, but it, it was successful before it turned. Like like it was good. It got like second best to show, and then like a month or two later, it turned. It went sour. 
but you've never had like a kettle explode or anything. No, like that. no, knock on wood. No, yeah. no, no, Gordon Strong with a with a keg exploding. Yeah, boy, was he our whipping boy after that? Oh man, tell me about it. He, I he hope he's listening to this. That. I hope he's listening. I'll, I'll send it to him. Okay, just to be please sure. do. <laughs> Gordon, we <laughs> mentioned you in the podcast. Yeah. What? I'm somebody. <laughs> okay, last question, man. What non-beer thing are you fascinated by or obsessed with? What besides beer? Mm -hmm. What is the thing that you are just like totally into? Cider. <laughs> and, well, me too. Not, not like a TV show or something like. Oh, that. oh. Uh, I mean, just anything, anything. Oh, uh, so off the topic of like hobbies and stuff like that. It could be anything. What, what, what do you What do you think about when you're not thinking about beer? Oh, I can do that. <laughs> I, can do that. Uh, I don't know. I, I moved to the Pacific Northwest because I like to be outdoors and enjoy, and it's a beautiful part of the country yeah. to go hiking, to take in all of what is out here and it's amazing it's a whole nother world isn't it great man yeah, i moved yeah. out here from the midwest too and it's like so different than uh, yeah. than what we have back there i mean when you drive through the columbia river gorge and you just feel so minuscule <laughs> and for anybody that drives through the columbia river gorge and you'll love this the best music to listen to is pink floyd oh yeah you know i mean something like breathe something that's really you know um melodic right it's just like and you just look up at these like large walls and waterfalls and you're like this is just you know enormous yeah why isn't everybody here and i'm glad they're not yeah, yes yes <laughs> you can visit as much as you want just don't stay go, <laughs> go, go back to northern california <laughs> <laughs> this means you denny i mean i mean that drew 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 <laughs> Okay, well, we've been talking to Rodney Kibsey here at the inaugural Pacific Northwest Homebrew Conference. Rodney, thank you so much, oh, man. Thank you. It's it been has great. been a trip. Yeah, so yeah. Thanks a bunch, man. <laughs> no problem. And that was Rodney giving us the secrets or the non secrets to his brewing success. Uh, great guy. Thank you so much, Rodney. And uh, keep winning, buddy. Uh, we'll see you at NHC, uh, hopefully on stage. All right, everybody, it's that time of the week when we decide to see how much lying we can do and sound like we actually know what we're talking about. That's right. <laughs> it's our short Q&A episode, and we're not going to sit here for the next two hours. It's just going to be the next four questions. And by the way, real quick, if you if you had a question in the pool and we didn't get to it in our Q&A episode, don't worry. We still have plenty of Q&A time left to go. So you, your question may be on the rebound. Now, and if you want to get a question into us, Make sure that you email us at questions at experimentalbrew.com, find us online at Facebook, or email us, uh, tweet us, uh, forum post us, message us, poke us, do whatever you can, wherever you can find Denny or I, and we'll make sure that your questions get into the mix. All right, so we have four questions, and question number one belongs to you, Mr. Denny Kahn. All right. Our first question today is uh, from Brock Freeman, who writes via email. I am a newer brewer and great rhymesmith, well, at least adequate Brock, uh, and recently made an all-grain double IPA that is based off Bell's Two-Hearted Clone recipe from the AHA website. 
Before transferring to secondary, the beer tasted great, and I was terribly proud of myself as the beer tasted very similar to Two-Hearted. I transferred the beer to secondary using CO2 and dry hopped with five ounces of fresh Centennial for two days, then cold crashed the beer for 24 hours or so and CO2 transferred to a keg. I sanitized the hop bags, secondary carboy, and keg, but the beer coming out of the keg had a very unpleasant taste which reminded me of watermelon rind and also had a very harsh bitterness. These flavors certainly mellowed out as the beer sat in the keg, and the beer was very enjoyable by the time the keg blew, but did not really hit the mark of tasting like two-hearted. I was wondering what the two of you think would cause this. Are my sanitation techniques off? Is this just green beer and I'm being an impatient noob? Well, maybe, Brock. Uh, first of all, it's, it's darn hard to tell without tasting the beer. Uh, you know, your description of watermelon rind and a harsh bitterness, though, kind of points me towards your hops and dry hopping. Uh, number one, I know people are into using insane amounts of dry hops for dry hopping these days, but five ounces to me is truly insane. And if those hops were not the best quality hops, that could uh, possibly have an effect. Or the sheer amount of the hops, coupled with the fact that you said that it kind of like uh, mellowed out eventually, leads me to think that maybe you just like hit dry hop overload there and uh, you were you were getting a lot of the initial hit of the of the vegetalness of the hops vegetality veget hmm wh whatever that word would be um and that eventually that kind of subsided and became a more pleasant beer uh saying that it didn't taste anything like too hearted uh after you dry hopped it also kind of leads me to believe that it might be the hops remember that uh a brewery like Bell's is buying lots of really good hops and they get to go to the hop growers and pick the lots they want and contract for them. And uh, maybe the hops you got in a hold of weren't as good quality as theirs. You know, I, I'm just kind of grasping at straws here because, like I said, I didn't taste the beer, which would be the real key. Uh, what do you think? Do you got any other thoughts about it? Well, I did. I did reach out to Brock because I just wanted to uh, clarify a couple things because there were a, a few things that I thought were missing from the the question. So I asked him how long he had waited uh, before taking his first taste. You know, when he reported this watermelon rind, and how long did it take before it mellowed out to this point that he's talking about? And he said, uh, "Hi, Drew. I tasted it after about five hours, carbonating the keg, doing the rock and roll method." I purged the keg several times before doing this, and it mellowed out after being uh, after about two months in the keg. So, to me, the technique that was described is fine. Sanitation sounds fine. Mm -hmm. um, the even the carbonation sounds fine. I would typically not be surprised at, at getting like a little bit of harshness after five hours of coming off the hops, but right. also at the same time. Eh, I mean, it shouldn't take two months before it to smooth out. So I am shockers of shockers in complete agreement with you. It's the hops. <laughs> I mean, I, 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 I don't know suspect, what else it could possibly be. Yeah. I mean, I would suspect if the beer itself was tasting great, 
uh, and you win. Five ounces to me, yeah, that's a little strange. And the fact that you're reporting Rind-like characters says to me, Tannin. And that would be Mm -hmm. a definite side effect of a large hop charge. Uh, So, yeah, five ounces of Centennial is kind of crazy. And if they aren't the the top-notch, top-quality, you know, uh, you know, beautiful looking centennials. Uh, I could imagine there being problems there. So yeah, and I would I would think that also that after a couple months, those uh, those hop tannins are going to uh, bind with the proteins and start to drop out of the beer. So the beer flavor will change and uh, and get mellower, and some of that harshness will go away. Yeah. Uh, Brock, buddy, that's all we can come up with, man. Uh, hope hopefully that will help you some, and uh, you know, next time, I mean. Uh, Five ounces. You don't need five ounces in there, man. I guarantee you, you don't need five ounces. Yeah. Okay. I, I don't think I've ever used more than, like, say, two for a five-gallon batch in a single charge. Yeah. And I know. I see a lot of people putting in huge, huge amounts of dry hops, and I really feel like there's a, a point of diminishing returns, you know, where it's dude, just not going to be worth it. Dude, you got to so. pack that bowl. <laughs> yeah. Okay, next question's up to you, buddy. All right, this one comes from uh, Graham Farr, who also emailed us, but this time he emailed us from Scotland. Yay! All right. Yeah. Look at that Look at that day. We, we've got global reach. <laughs> All right, so Graham says, I see the term free rise used a lot, which I understand to mean that you pitch at a certain temperature and let the fermentation dictate where the temperature ends up. I control my fermentation temperature using an old fridge with a heater. So should I set it to the pitching temperature and keep it there with the probe reading the ambient temperature inside the fridge, or should I put the probe against the carboy and drive the temperature up? My preferred style is Belgian, so I'd like to make sure that I'm doing everything possible to ensure that the yeast behave the way they should. All right, I will put out there right now, I am never a huge fan of heating fermenting wort. Now, and I'm saying that as the guy who's written a sort of manifesto on doing saisons, where, yeah, I talk about free rise a lot. Uh, and you get people out there who say, oh, you know, Saison yeast, that needs to be up at uh, uh, 85 degrees Fahrenheit, uh, whatever that is in actual sensible uh, metric units. And, you know, th- they'll try and heat it up. Like, you know, I've got this in my chest freezer with a ceramic heater, or I put a brew belt around everything, or I sat it on a waterbed heater, et cetera, et cetera. The couple times I've played around with this and doing that sort of experiment, the ones that I've always disliked the most were the ones that were force heated. And I don't know if it's that I'm insane and I'm perceiving a difference or if there's an additional charge of fusels and uh, esters and phenols that I'm just not digging when you force heat the yeast. So for me, if I were you, what I would do is I would strap the probe to the side of the carboy. And actually program yourself to do this free rise, right? If you're inside of a, a, a chest freezer, uh, I would leave the heater out. Don't put the heater in, in place. You know, unplug it. Strap the strap the probe to the side of the carboy. Uh, start it initially cool at the pitching temperature, and then after a day or two, turn off the uh, turn off the fridge or turn off the the heat control. And, or turn it up to like say 75 and let it go all the way up there before the cooling kicks in. Uh, now, I don't know, given that you are in Scotland and Scotland uh, does tend to be a bit colder than California, if that will necessarily uh, translate perfectly to your experience, and it also is going to depend upon where you have the fridge. But fermentation does produce a fair amount of heat. So to me, I would give that a shot first. Basically, 
probe against the carboid, measure the temperature, initially drive the fermentation down to your initial pitching temperature. So I usually uh, preach 63 to 65. And uh, then after the first two days, turn your thermostat up to 75 degrees, but don't actively engage the heater. Just let it come up there. And if it gets above 75, let the fridge kick in and cool things down a little bit. So that's yeah, my I'm, advice. I'm I'm similar, but but different. Uh, and this is like a two-part question. First, first part is, and this is the really important part, Graham, you are interested in the beer temperature and not the ambient temperature. So you want that probe right up against your fermenter, which I've discovered is a, a pretty accurate way to measure the temperature of what's inside of it. I, uh, I put uh, the probe against my fermenter, put an old dry sponge over the top of it and a piece of duct tape on top of that to hold it there and uh, leave the probe uh, on the fermenter. I find that uh, the probe registers almost exactly the same temperature as the thermometer on the outside of the th uh, fermenter, which is almost exactly the same temperature I find if I actually stick a thermometer down into it. So the idea is you need beer temperature, not ambient temperature. Yes. I don't, I don't go quite as radical as Drew does by raising the temp up all the way after a day or so. Uh, my experience is that uh, I want to leave it uh, at the low temperature, maybe 63, 63-ish, for three days, maybe four. Then I'll kick it up maybe like four or five degrees the next day and another four or five degrees a couple days after that. Uh, that, uh, that, to me, has gotten me full finished fermentation. Uh, and that kind of ties back into a question we had on the Q&A show from somebody who'd been trying to do a, uh, a free rise but lived in Minnesota or Wisconsin or someplace like that and couldn't get the heat generated by fermentation to be enough. So they had to actually use a heater. So, yeah, do that if you need to. Yeah, if you, if you, can't, if you can't get the, the heater fermentation to drive it, then, yeah, by all means, drive it incrementally. But I've seen so many people just go... Okay, uh, I'm just going to goose this thing up to 85 and and then get bad results. Don't do that. Uh, and one one last little thing here, uh, Graham, you say your preferred style is Belgian. Whenever I'm making a Belgian beer, I think of uh, something that Stan Hieronymus said. And as far as I'm concerned, when Stan talks about uh, Belgian beers, I listen. Stan said... Uh, that the last 10% of fermentation of a Belgian beer can take as long as the first 90%, meaning that some of those yeasts take a while to finish. So give them time, uh, start getting the temp up when uh, the yeast is pretty much done, because that way you don't have to worry about uh, fusels and esters. So there you go, Graham, buddy. The next question is coming from Kyle Morton in my home state of Iowa. Kyle says, just started listening to the show and love the discussion so far. Thank you very much, Kyle. We'll send you a check soon. <laughs> or not. I've recently started to look at my water chemistry after using an AccuMash kit that seemed to really boost my brew house efficiency and flavor. The instructions say specifically to add the salts to the grains before the mash water and not the mash or sparge water. Do you think the precipitation is the concern, or is there something else I'm missing? I'm planning on buying my own salts, but not sure the best way to add them. 
Okay, first of all, I have no idea what an AccuMash kit is. Uh, if it's if it's one of those things that's just kind of like a combination of water salts that you add, then I would say stop doing it. <laughs> now, I realize that it's improved your efficiency and flavor, but really the right way to do it is to find out what's in your water first and then add what you need to that water for each individual beer and beer style that you're making. Okay, that's out of the way. Uh, Wait, hold on. You want, do you, do you want an answer real quick? Sure. On the AccuMash. All right. So I did yeah. some. Uh, I just did some research. Uh, AccuMash is a water treatment kit. Uh, it looks like a Northern Brewer and a couple of other places uh, sell them. But basically, you give them a beer color and what your original gravity is going to be and what sort of a flavor profile you want, and they deliver you some basic salt pack. You know, kind of like. Uh, slightly more vary, uh, varied versions of the old-fashioned way of going and buying a bottle of Burton water salts. Right, okay. So, but then basically you would have to put those into distilled, deionized water, right? Because yep. otherwise you would have to tell them what's in your water to yep. start with. Yep, they, that's what they said. have any validity. Okay, cool. So as long as you're adding this to distilled water, not as bogus as it seemed like at first. But... The advice given by my personal water guru, Martin Brungard, is to always add the salts to the water before you start heating the water. Uh, same thing goes with uh, acid, if you're using acid to adjust your pH. Uh, if you add them to the grain, they may not get fully dissolved. I just don't understand that concept at all. So I'm telling you right now, Kyle, no matter what that kit says... Add the salts to your water before you start heating it and just make sure they're thoroughly stirred in and dissolved. Not a problem. You got anything to add to that? No, my uh, my only addition is uh, trust Martin. Martin is very smart yeah. about water. That's right. Yeah. Uh, should you ever have any questions about water, do what I do and see what Martin has to say. There you go. Okay. Next question comes from Mike Thompson, and it's about making yeast starters. Yeah, so Mike emails us from uh, Massachusetts, aka my alma mater state, or sorry, my alma mater commonwealth. Uh, making yeast starters were a giant pain in the ass until I bought a pressure cooker. I've been canning starter work for about a year now and can't tell you how much time it saved. You don't have to tell me. I know. I love it. Uh, I use DME because it's easy, but I'd love to make my own work. In experimental homebrewing, you recommend mashing two-row to produce a 1036 wort, transferring your mason jars, and then moving straight to the pressure cooker. doesn't matter that the wort isn't boiled before going into the jars. I'm not worried about bugs. The pressure cooker will take care of that. I'm thinking about chemicals that would be normally volatized during the boil, like DMS, for example. Is my starter wort going to smell like canned corn? Will that have any effect on the yeast? Will I need to decant this starter wort before pitching to avoid off flavors in my finished beer? Okay, so... Series of questions. People are sneaking multiple questions into their question. All right. Uh, doesn't matter that the wort is, uh, uh, isn't boiled before going into the jars. No. Uh, not with, what about the things like DMS and, and SMM and all that that would be volatized? Uh, trust me, they're going into a 250-some-odd degree uh, water bath. They're getting volatized. Uh, you may not realize it, but, I mean, really, that stuff is escaping out of the cans, while they're uh, while they're boiling in the pressure cooker, it's also part of the reason why you don't crank down on the lids. You have to allow steam to escape uh, from the jars. 
Uh, is my starter work going to smell like uh, canned corn? Not in my experience. Uh, will it have any effect on the yeast? No. Will I need to decant the starter wort before pitching to avoid off flavors in my finished beer? Well, that depends upon how you feel about decanting starter wort to begin with. So we know that, uh, for instance, myself, I'm a huge fan of decanting starter wort. I will do, I still do uh, cold crashing and I will decant and then I will actually feed it a little bit of wort before I, uh, on game day, so that the yeast has a chance to kind of get, get in motion before going into the pool. Uh, if you go and you listen to like one of our contributors to the site, Mark Vandita, uh, he will talk about not decanting, uh, for various reasons. So there's no compelling reason for you to do anything different about your starter wort in terms of decanting other than what you already do to your process, just because you're using pressure canned all grain wort, at least to my mind. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and yeah, and if if you want to if you want to do it, it's a great thing to have. I've always said that I'm too lazy to uh, make the effort, make things easier for me, so I don't do that. But I also don't have a pressure canner, so well, who knows? And, maybe one of these days I'll be like the cool kids. There you go. Well, or at least uh, kids like me. Now, and by the way, Mike, I do I do want to stress, I don't typically do my pressure cans from all grain work, and mostly because. Uh, I don't, I don't feel like I have the time to go set up a whole mash in order to do this. So I've done it before, but even nowadays I still mostly do mine from DME. I'm willing to take the extra, extra cost hit to just do that. You could also take the other tack that other other people do, which is if you're making a beer, uh, plan for an extra gallon of wort or an extra two gallons of wort when you're doing your mash, and take those runnings and turn those into your pressure cans. So that's just another way of doing it without costing yourself really more time. All right. Okay. That's the, that's the Q&A for this week. And I think that we came up with some reasonably credible answers. Mostly. They're not going to revoke our brewing expert uh, statuses on anything I, we said, I think. Yeah, right. Now, remember, if you have a question that you'd like us to try and tackle, you can write to us at questions at experimentalbrew.com. And we are going to be right back with our quick tip of the week. Okay, it's time for our quick tip of the week. Uh, and this really, this really strikes home with me and my whole cheap and easy philosophy. It comes from Bruin Hard on the AHA discussion forum. He says, don't get too caught up in all the fancy brewing equipment when you first get started. While shiny new equipment sure can look cool, great beer can be made on very simple, fairly inexpensive setups. Be sure to pay close attention to wort production first, then pay even more attention to fermentation temperatures and proper packaging, minimizing oxygen pickup wherever possible. This will give your finished product the best chance at staying fresh while you enjoy it for many days to come. And as I've said many times before, um, while I do use a Zymatic to brew, more often I use the same cooler that I have been using for... Uh, 16 years and 18 years and as of yesterday 496 batches of beer simple equipment can be effective equipment if you like cool stuff 
go get yourself some cool stuff. Just don't think that you have to have all that shiny, fancy stuff. And especially when you're starting, it's a lot more important to learn the processes and techniques than it is to have fancy, shiny equipment. Isn't that right? Yeah, but you know what? It is kind of fun to have fancy, shiny equipment. I agree. Just don't think you got to have fancy, shiny equipment to make good beer and uh, learn to brew and then decide what kind of fancy, shiny equipment you need. Well, and to that point, I mean, the guy who taught me how to brew all grain, uh, he brewed beers that came within a few percentage points of the Anheuser-Busch Budweiser spec using two plastic buckets with a bunch of holes drilled in them. Yeah, right. So if if you if you know what you're doing and you're careful about it, then uh, you can make great beer with uh, really really minimal equipment. So uh, time time to move on to things other than beer. We do uh, have other interests outside of beer, at least a couple of them. And uh, today we're gonna have my partner Drew talk about how he's gone from a fatty like me to a svelte-looking magazine model. All right, well, first, uh, I, I take exception to your first statement, which was, I was not fat like you, I was even fatter. But I do want, I, I, I do want to have one non-weight-lossy thing in there uh, first, which is, we are in spring, and uh, or about to be in spring, and one of the cool things that's happening now is we're starting to see the animal kingdom come back to life, and thanks to modern technology, we actually get to kind of have a good uh, viewpoint on it. And so we'll include a URL for this in the in the episode listing. But Brees just posted a uh, article on their blog showing their live Falcon cam that's atop one of their malt silos or grain elevators uh, up there in Wisconsin. And really kind of cool to see uh, because you actually get to see a live peregrine falcon's nest and all the stuff they're doing to kind of start the year. So that's thing one. All right. Thing two. The, uh, uh, the more nitty-gritty part, and I wasn't originally going to talk about this, but uh, we had enough requests from people online saying, hey, you should totally talk about what the hell it is that you did. So, December 27th, or no, sorry, December 26, 2014, uh, I have a photo that I took of myself that at the time I thought was a really good photo. Uh, November of 2014, I found... Uh, went to the doctor and I'd weighed in at 270 pounds, which I am five foot 10, 270 pounds on a, <laughs> 270 pounds yeah. on a five foot 10 frame is not a good combination. And no, I was not built like an offensive lineman. I did not have a bunch of muscle. I could not bench 700 pounds. I was simply fat. Uh, and truthfully, I would suspect like a lot of people, who find themselves in that condition. I have struggled with my weight since I was a kid. Uh, This is about my third time losing weight and hopefully my last one, Uh, not by reasons of death, but because of reasons of maintenance. And so yeah, November weighed in at 270 pounds and that was not enough to get me to start losing weight, even though I was terribly embarrassed by it. Uh, Early December, I had what I felt like was a minor heart attack on my way of walking up the driveway from my grocery store to my house. That still wasn't enough. Uh, December, I flew home for for Christmas, go visit my family, and I was super excited because I got exit row seats, which is awesome on these modern coach airlines. And one of the gotchas about an exit row seat is you cannot have a seatbelt extender in the exit row seat. 
And I desperately needed one unless I sucked in my gut. And so I sat all the way to Florida from L.A. and all the way back from Florida to L.A. in the exit row with my holding my breath so I didn't need a seatbelt extension so I could continue to sit in the exit row. And still, that wasn't enough. January 5th, 2015, we had our monthly Maltos Falcons meeting. I got up, I did my spiel, uh, I talked for an hour, because that's what I do. Came home and got sick. And I got sick because my wife had gotten sick. My wife's a, an English teacher. And if you know anything about teachers, you know that they build up immune systems that are somewhat equivalent to the Great Wall. Damn near impenetrable. And if she gets sick, I am definitely getting sick. And I was sick for the next 10 plus days. And by sick, I mean laying in bed, unable to think, unable to eat anything except for chicken broth. And by the time those 10 days came up, uh, just for giggles, I went, hey, I think I lost some weight. I went and I stepped on the scale and realized I was at 260 pounds. So that is what it took for me to get started on weight loss. And it is simultaneously one of the hardest things to do, one of the easiest things to do, and one of the most embarrassing admissions I've ever had to make, the fact that I was over 270 pounds. Uh, as of last week, I weighed myself, and I was at 158. So that was in the course of about 13 months. I lost 112 pounds or so, which you know means I've lost a small child. And the a lot of people a lot of people ask the question. Okay, so how'd you do it? Because dude, you are a beer person. Uh, so I'm just going to tell you, there's no there's no real magic to it. If there was magic to it, I would be glad to sell you a diet plan, and I would love to sell you a little magic pill that would make me as rich as Croesus. But the true secret was there are now programs for the phone. You know all these wonderful little mobile computers that we all carry around with us. And the one that I picked up and used was a program from Under Armour called uh, MyFitnessPal. And MyFitnessPal has a massive database of foods that are available, uh, restaurant menus. Uh, it allows you to construct your own recipes. And I started to just count calories. And when I first started, I was allowed 2,000 calories a day as a complete sedentary fat butt. 2,000 calories a day to lose a pound and a half a week. I ended up losing close to two and a half pounds a week in that early stage. So really it came down to, I started watching what I was eating. I stopped eating all the things that you know that you're not supposed to eat or that you shouldn't eat. You know, so less sweets, uh, less refined carbs. Uh, arguably the thing I miss more than anything else is a big plate of French fries. Um, but yeah, I cut all those out and I started to make smarter choices. And what I mean by smarter choices, and I, I want to be careful about this, is I didn't just start eating like, you know, Ooh, dry chicken breast and steamed vegetables because that's a recipe for putting your head through a desk. Um, I just started making little choices, uh, switching over to making my sandwiches with thin buns, uh, going with lighter cheese or lower amounts, or just even watching the amount of mayonnaise I was putting on something uh, instead of just slathering it on there like it's, you know, putty. And just starting to make those choices and starting to pay attention to what I was eating was enough to kick me down 30, 40 pounds. And then after that, I started to make better choices in terms of choosing things that were less calorically dense, but more nutritionally dense. 
things with more dietary fiber. And the reason for that is because as you lose weight, you also have less calories that you can eat in order to keep losing weight. It's sort of a cruel thing. And But the extra dietary fiber and the extra bulk helped, me, helped keep me from feeling hungry. And they allowed me to pack in more food inside my calorie limit. Uh, for exercise, the only thing I did was for a good long while, I walked. Every day at lunch, I left my office and I went and I walked a mile, a mile and a half, two miles, three miles, four and a half miles now, and did that just around my office, come back and I had a salad. Ta-da! And the real point about this that I want to stress, I did not hit the gym to lose weight until November of last year when I was already 90 pounds down and I needed that little extra drive to get the rest of the way. Uh, and the reason why I stress this is a very important point is a lot of people, when they decide they're going to lose weight, they suit up, they go grab their sneakers that have been dusty in the closet and they go, they hit the gym, they run on the treadmill, run, 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 as much as they can, huff and puff. And somehow that seems to set them up for failure. And the reason is, I will tell you right now, I was never hungry, like truly hungry, like, oh my God, I have to eat something or else I'm going to kill people. Until I started to go to the gym and lift weights and started to work out and started to burn more calories. So my advice is a little different than what a lot of people will tell you. Go walk for your exercise. Maybe do a little light jogging. Don't try and kill yourself in the gym until you get your diet under control, until you understand how you have to work with food now. Now, this brings us to the beer because... Beer is one of those things that is in direct violation of an earlier rule that I said, which was to try and make better, more dieti- more dietically sensible choices, more nutrient-dense choices. Beer, for all the love I have of it and all the love of the feelings that it gives me, is not a nutritionally wise choice. Right, it has some, some things like selenium. Yay. Uh, it has alcohol. Alcohol is actually a relaxant, and it's been shown to do some good for your heart. Uh, our problem is that we tend to overuse it. So what I started to do was basically included in my diet. If the beer doesn't fit, I ain't sipping it. Right? Or wait, let's go for the Johnny Cochran. If the beer doesn't fit, you mustn't sip. Yeah, no kidding. And literally, that's what I did. I made sure that the beers I was having fit into my dietary counts. This is the reason why correct dietary choices are very, very important. If you're a beer drinker and a beer brewer, do you want those extra pints or do you want the cheese on your double cheeseburger? That's the choice you have to make. That's the choice I've been making. So there you go. How do you lose weight as a beer drinker or a beer brewer? Eat a little less. Eat a lot better. Move a little more. And remember to have patience about this. You know, I did, uh, I did 112 pounds in 13, 14 months, and that's pretty damn fast. But it doesn't have to be that. It doesn't have to be that fast. I mean, this is a long haul thing. The problem with saying the word I'm on a, or the phrase I'm on a diet is somehow that implies to a lot of people and including yourself and to me that at some point the diet's going to end. And the problem is, is that if you want to be a beer drinker and you want to lose weight and you want to keep it off, the diet doesn't end. The diet just changes. 
that's all you're doing. Yeah. You know what? And I, I definitely found that uh, uh, a few years back, I managed to lose 35, 40 pounds. And I was so happy about it that I congratulated myself by starting to eat and drink whatever I wanted to and blowing off my exercise. And I gained it all back and more. So now I have an even bigger job ahead of me. But uh, at least I have an inspiration and a role model. Yeah, there you go. We're going to quickly morph this podcast from all about experimental beer to experimental bodies. No. Uh, No way. No No. way. But but seriously, (laughs) again, guys and girls, the real secret is it's hard work. It's continuous work. But you really just – you have to be – you have to be consistent. By far and away, more than anything else, it's consistency. If you have a day when you have a pitcher of beer or a half a keg of beer or a full cheese pizza, okay, you did that. Guess what tomorrow is? Tomorrow's the day when you don't do that. And as long as you stack up more of those days when you don't do that versus the days when you are doing it, then you're going to see movement. And that's right. what you need to say. Right. Okay, and after Brother Drew gets done preaching it, it's time to move on to our question of the week. What do you think about the uh, the conclusions of our first word hop versus bittering hop experiment? Uh, How else should we explore this concept? Let us hear your take on the results that we got, because uh, we don't really know what to make of them. So tell us what you think. (laughs) What? And also, yeah, hey, do the right. experiment yourself. Give yeah, us more that's data. what that's what we really need is more data. Do the experiment yourself. Tell us what you think. So, uh, Drew, time for the recap, buddy. What did we do? Uh, what did we do? I did what? Uh, oh, yeah, that's right. Uh, we went to the pub. We had a beer. Uh, we talked a little bit about a couple of things. We talked about hop medicine. We talked about Pico Brew going to eleven. We talked about uh, the value of sampler flights. We also talked about all the great feedback we had on our session uh, beer recipes. We talked about the feedback that we've had on the Q&A episode and the fact that apparently you guys want more of both of those. So we're totally going to do it. And then we went to the lab and we confused the ever-living hell out of ourselves with our experimental results about first word hopping versus bittering. Good Lord, help us people. (laughs) All right. And then, then we went to the lounge. And at the lounge, we had a great discussion with Rodney. So you can learn some of Rodney's non-secrets to non-competition winning. Uh, and then we did our we did our Q and A. Not too badly, I don't think. We gave you a little bit of uh, uh, gave you a little bit of uh, a lesson both on falcons and on weight loss. And I'm sorry I got a little too deep there, but that's what happens. And now it's time to get ready for next week. That's right. So thanks a bunch for joining us this week on Experimental Brewing. You can catch all of our latest adventures and writings by going to our website, which is experimentalbrew.com. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter. We're at Experimental Brew. We're on Facebook and probably uh, other places I don't even know about. Also, don't forget about the uh, Patreon link on our website where you can throw us a few bucks to uh, help train some service dogs for disabled veterans. And hey. You've been hearing all of our ads for our various sponsors. These people make our show possible. So, if you have interactions with our sponsors, make sure you tell them that you heard about them on our podcast. It helps. Trust me. Yeah, really, man. Uh, These people are the reason that we're all here. Uh, You should be doing business with them and letting them know that you enjoy the podcast. 
And don't forget, if you want to ask us a question or suggest topics or recipes, experiments, or even just rant and rave, you can email us at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. Or if you want to complain and tell us how the other one is holding them back, you can email us individually at denny at experimentalbrew.com or drew at experimentalbrew.com. And remember to always brew experimentally. Or brew wacky. And we'll see you on the next episode of Experimental Brewing. 